Blog Talk Radio. You're listening to Starseed Radio Academy, empowering Starseed to better serve the planet. Welcome to Starseed Radio Academy. It's Tuesday, June 21st, 2016, and happy summer solstice. I'm your host, Arielle Taylor, with my co-host for the evening, Anastasia. Lavendar is away on assignment this week, but she'll be back next week on the 28th with Tom T. Moore, who's just released his new book on Atlantis and Lemuria, and it is monumental, so be sure to look for that. Our presentation this evening is a recording from Lavendar's vault with the Atlantis information that was shown to her in November and December of 1980. For five hours every day, she was given truth about Atlantis in the form of holograms and telethought communications from the Pleiadian starship known as the Star of Bethlehem. When she recently read Tom T. Moore's new book on Atlantis and Lemuria, it confirmed and aligned with what she had been shown back in 1980. So tonight's show will be a lead-in to next week's show with Mr. Moore. And we are excited to announce the next Starseed Crystal Quest to Arkansas, which is October 16th through the 22nd. This is a soul group reunion, so only those with at least one of six star markings are eligible to attend, namely 25, 26, or 27 degrees in Taurus, Scorpio, Capricorn, Cancer, Aquarius, and Leo. If you feel the call of the crystals and aren't sure if you have the required markings, I'll be happy to take a quick look at your charts and let you know. Just send me your complete birth info with the date, exact time, place, and your current location. And write to crystals, that's plural, crystals, at starseedhotline.com. Excuse me. At the top of the show, it's Anastasia's Starseed News, bringing topics of interest to starseeds that you won't hear in the mainstream. And since Lavendar won't be with us live tonight, we won't be taking any questions at the end of the show, but do save them for next week when both she and Tom will be here. If you'd like to chat with like-minded people, we have an online Starseed community at starseedhotline.ning.com. And special thanks to Tammy always for her dedication and help with our forum. You can download any show in our archives on iTunes or right from our Blog Talk Radio episode page using the cloud with an arrow on it. We'd appreciate your support of our show, and you can do that by clicking follow on our page here at Blog Talk, and you'll get our weekly show notice so you know what's coming up. The toll-free number for StarseedHotline.com is 888-881-0881. The Stage 1 Starseed confirmations are based on Lavendar's discovery of star markings in your natal astrological chart, and the Stage 2 session is a one-on-one phone session available with Lavendar, Anastasia, or myself. Remote healing sessions for people and pets are also available with Tammy. And if you have a birthday coming up, you don't want to miss out on your 10 hours of power. You can find out when that happens by requesting your solar return timing, and you can also read about that in our Vault of Knowledge. And if you want a stage two interpretation of that chart, please order it at least two or three months ahead of your birthday to make sure you get it in before your 10 hours because we do have a waiting list. So first this evening, I would like to introduce Anastasia, with her very popular Starseed News. And let me get your mic open. It's still spinning. Okay. <laughs> Welcome, Anastasia. Well, good evening, Ariel. Good evening, Starseed listeners. 
great to be back. Boy, is it hot in my neighborhood. I'll bet it's kind of warm in yours as well. Summer oh, sure. Yeah, especially down in the south uh, where we kind of are. Well, so, summer solstice started yesterday, and do you all know that's the earliest summer solstice in 120 years, according to Farmer's Almanac. Now, also, we had a full moon yesterday called the Strawberry Moon. Today, it's waning gibbous. It's just 98% full, lost 2% of its fullness in 24 hours. Now, since this full moon occurred 11 hours prior to the onset of the solstice, this moon is the last full moon of spring. There's also uh, no, uh, almost no chance of solar flares. NOAA forecasters say that the chance of a strong flare today is no more than 1%. Actually, right now, solar activity is low and is likely to remain so, they say, for the rest of the week. Well, there is a record-breaking heat wave that has taken four lives as it has scorched the southwestern United States. At least four people have died in a record heat-setting wave that has engulfed the southwest. The deaths occurred in Arizona, where the temperature hit 120 degrees in some places. More than 30 million people are currently under heat warnings or advisories. There has been a magnitude 6.1 earthquake recorded near Papua New Guinea. Uh, there was no injuries reported. Uh, this occurred today. And a 6.3 earthquake uh, off of Vanuatu uh, that just occurred a couple of days ago. No tsunami alert was issued, and there were no damages reported. But when it comes to earthquakes in the San Andreas Fault, well, they have discovered an earthquake uh, motion detector. They, uh, they uh, wait a minute. Let me back up. <laughs> I got ahead of myself here. <laughs> they have discovered large-scale motion along the San Andreas fault line, thanks to a new analysis of existing data. Now they've come up with a way of interpreting data, and the previously uninterpreted data uh, showed vertical movement of the fault's crust. And uh, they said that that was over an area of 125 miles. This is a rather complex story to report since it's pretty scientific uh, from a geological point of view. So I tried to boil this down, and I hope I didn't make it too nonsensical here. But anyway, the bottom line is that these hot spots have been known about, but previously they've been unable to pinpoint their location. And while they've predicted them in previous models, Right now, we have the first time that scientists have been able to block out enough white noise and pinpoint the locations of these movements. They're hoping that perhaps this may uh, enable them to better predict uh, coming um, activity uh, on that San Andreas Fault, so we'll see. Wow, that was tough. I hope you made some sense out of that. <laughs> I got it. Okay, good. Well, anyway, Greece had a tornado. Can you imagine that? A tornado went through a city in Thrace, which is in north, northeast Greece. They said it spread panic and destruction in its path earlier today. They say that the extreme weather phenomenon for Greece, not for Kansas, but it came in the wake of three earlier tornadoes that had swept through the plains where their crops were destroyed. Wow. Three earlier tornadoes, that's four total recently in Greece. <clears throat> Excuse my uh, raspy voice, everybody. I happen to have hay fever. And as you've oh, noticed, 
over the weeks, I'm sounding more and more like, I don't know, Darth Vader or something. (laughs) (laughs) So please pardon me. I'm really not all that spooky. And I'll try to get through this broadcast. You know, I talk all day long and do sessions, and and the later the day gets, the more rough I sound. Well, uh, they have developed a supercomputer in China that has been made without U.S. hardware for the very first time. I think that this is an important news story. Uh, It's a a Chinese supercomputer, which has been named the world's fastest computer for the seventh year in a row. But... As I've said, unlike previous winners, uh, this year's champion uses only Chinese-designed processors, which actually is beginning to represent a decline of U.S. dominance in the computer industry. And uh, what they are using in these Chinese-developed computers are called Shenwei processors. These processors are capable of 93 petaflops, or a quadrillion calculations per second, a quadrillion calculations per second. Wow. wow. And this computer was designed for use, and they say, in engineering and research. But no telling what they will use that for. Isn't that incredible? Y'all remember what? those floppy disks and uh-huh. our old computers that clunked along? What a time and what a development in the past 25 years. Amazing. Well, we're talking a little bit about technology tonight because there were some important articles I wanted to share with you, some of them about our privacy and uh, what's going on out there in the technological arena with that. Um, Banks are now opting to scan fingerprints and faces for account access instead of using passwords, and they say that they probably intend to uh, discontinue the use of passwords forever. This is just a uh, precedent for what is coming. And some of the nation's largest banks are acknowledging that traditional passwords are either too cumbersome or no longer secure, and they intend to use fingerprints, facial scans, or other types of biometrics to safeguard user accounts. Well, millions of customers at Bank of America, J.P. Morgan Chase, and Wells Fargo routinely use fingerprints to log into their bank accounts through their mobile phones. Now, this feature, which uh, some of the largest banks have introduced in just the last few months, is enabling a huge swath of the American banking uh, public to verify their identity with biometrics. And millions of additional customers are expected to opt in as more phones incorporate fingerprint scans. Now, you know, all of you should know that the trade-off is that in the quest for security and convenience, and maybe other things as well, Customers are handing over the marks of their unique physical identities. Convenience may not be a good reason to do it. Uh, Southern California, Southern California, they say, is in a power grid emergency. With all of this heat going on, I don't suppose we should be surprised. According to this article from a website called shtfplan.com. Uh, customers should expect 14 days without power. Now, this is not an official uh, newscast. I'm just reading to you what this article said, and then I'm going to give you a quote from Reuters, so don't hit the panic button. But it's probably a good idea to be prepared. According to this article, the uh, Los Angeles metropolitan area and most of Southern California can expect blackouts this summer. The power grid is under direct threat. As a result, who would have thunk it? 
of the unprecedented but little reported that massive natural gas leak at Aliso Canyon that was uh, going on for four months, uh, and now the intense uh, summer heat wave is setting in. Now, according to Reuters, California will have its first test of plans to keep the lights on this summer. With record-setting uh, heat and air conditioning demand expected in Southern California, the state's power grid operator issued a so-called flex alert, urging consumers to conserve energy to help prevent rotating power outages, which could occur regardless of consumer conservation. Electricity demand is expected to rise during this unseasonable heat wave uh, yesterday and today moving forward with a forecast system-wide use expected to top 45,000 megawatts. And that could put stress on the power grid, particularly with the uh, discontinuation of the leak of Alisco Canyon following uh, that uh, massive leak at an underground storage facility in October. So there we have it a little bit of power shortage possible in Southern California. And you all are smart. You know what to do to prepare. Well, <clears throat> a lot of us like pizza. Some of us like pizza. Some of us know better than to eat pizza. But anyway, <laughs> you know, we're used to being uh, surveilled by government now. There's cameras on many corners, um, just a lot of surveillance going on. If you live in Great Britain, that's just a way of life for you. And uh, Big Brother tells us that if we have nothing to hide, we have nothing to fear from the surveillance state. Well, now a new effort by Domino's Pizza Enterprises uh, to start tracking their customers via satellite is a perfect example of just how eager corporations are uh, to jump on this bandwagon of surveilling everybody. Now, they use uh, uh, the justification that they use for surveilling people is improved customer service or maybe even the ability to deliver a higher quality product. But grief, it's just pizza. But the reality <laughs> is now that Domino's <laughs> is going to start tracking their customers every move between the time they place, uh, place their order to the time that they pick it up. And all the while, they're going to be collecting data on personal life habits. Bloomberg reports, I quote, uh. Domino's Pizza Enterprises, LTD, Australia's largest pizza company, will on Monday start using satellites to follow customers as they approach stores to pick up orders. Now, by the way, I'd like to insert something here. We have quite a few starseed that listen to this broadcast from Australia, so it's relevant to all of you out there. Anyway, I continue. By tracking pizza lovers on the street, Domino's can wait until the last moment to start cooking and ensure that their orders stay fresh, the company told Bloomberg. Now, from next week, customers in Australia who use smartphones to pick up pizzas can choose to be followed uh, by Domino's tracking system. They can also specify whether they're coming in on foot, on bicycle, or by car. Cooking starts when the map shows that customers are within range, the company has reported. Well, now, the There's idea for Domino's... wrong with that. <laughs> something wrong with that. I'm telling you what, people, this is becoming like a bad sci-fi movie every passing month. Uh, well, you know, everybody's going to fall for that, of course. People being what they are, they, they think that it's a great service. But the reality is that uh, this type of surveillance is merely conditioning to get people into a mindset that it's just perfectly acceptable to be watched. 
whether it's by a corporation, a third-party entity, or the government. It's getting people accustomed to living in a surveillance state. It is conditioning, and uh, this is just part of the conditioning for the dysfunctional world to come uh, that they are preparing uh, young people, particularly new generations, to get used to this sort of thing. It's becoming the wave of the future. So anyway, if you live in Australia and you want to get Domino's Pizza, maybe you could order it on the phone or just drive by and pick it up instead of using your smartphone. Those smartphones, as we are soon to find out with the next article, are just becoming uh, a way of really invading everybody's privacy to the maximum. And why do I say that? Well, Facebook, for instance. Did you know that your Facebook mobile app has complete access to your phone's microphone? Well, maybe you did and maybe you didn't, but maybe you didn't know what they're doing with that. Recently, an expert has come out to claim that Facebook may be listening in on your conversations. A math communication professor at the University of South Florida believes the app might be using people's microphones to gather data on the content of people's conversations. Now, Facebook admits that the app is capable of listening to what's happening around it. (coughs) Excuse me, I beg your pardon but claims the feature simply identifies what people are listening to or watching as a means of conveniently posting about it. Now, currently, the feature is only available in the United States and has been available for a couple of years, according to Facebook. Excuse me, my computer just refreshed and I lost my place. Isn't this fun? This is just down-home news. (laughs) Anyway... According to a report in The Independent, uh, this expert that I just spoke of, this professor, has said that the tool, the app, appears to be using the audio it gathers not simply to help out users, but might be doing so to listen into discussions and serve them with relevant advertising. She says that to test the feature, she discussed certain topics around the phone and then found that the site appeared to show relevant uh, ads. Now, this professor said she was not convinced that Facebook is listening in on conversations. It may have been that she was searching for the same things that she chose to discuss around the phone. But she said that it wouldn't be a surprising move from the Facebook site. The claim happens to chime in with anecdotal reports online, anecdotal reports online, that the site appears to show ads for things that people have mentioned in passing. So all of you out there that are on Facebook, and have your phones on. Have you noticed that the ads are showing up based on maybe what you've been talking about? Now, Facebook admits that their app can listen to audio and collects audio information from users. Did you all hear that? But that the two are not combined, according to Facebook, and that no audio data is stored or correlated with advertising. Have we ever been lied to before, people? Does anyone out there ever lie to us about anything? How about they lie to us about everything? Now, although Facebook claims they do not listen in on conversations, the catch here is that Facebook does have access to your phone's microphone. And as giving permission to access your microphone is a requirement to be able to download the site's mobile app, that will give the company access to access Uh, access your phone's microphone at any time. Well, I wanted to pass along a solution for those of you that don't trust Facebook to have access to your microphone. 
So one simple way is to uninstall the app altogether and simply access Facebook from the mobile site itself, thus never having to give any permissions to access your data or your microphone. Might be a good idea. Another fix is to turn off the microphone in the phone settings, which is, according to this article, relatively easy to do. Uh, since this is done at the operating system level, doing so will mean that Facebook loses the ability to access your microphone completely. Now, on an iPhone, this can be done by entering the app's settings. You go to the privacy setting and then switch the slider for the microphone to the off position. If you have an Android phone, go to the settings and then privacy, and then go to app permissions, go to your microphone, and from there you can change the permissions that the Facebook app is given. <clears throat> so that's how you do it. Um, I think that knowledge is very important and that so many people don't know what's going on, so you need to know. And people don't read the fine print when they sign up for an app or they download it. Um, you know, you always generally click, click an accept button and without reading it. So just to let you know that when you've downloaded that app, you've given Facebook permission to turn on your microphone and have a listen to whatever's going on, no matter what they say. If you're comfortable with that, okay. If you're not, I've told you what to do about it. Well, this is an article from Starseed Listener in Indiana. Her name is Carol, and I want to thank her for sending me this. And I told her I was going to mention her in tonight's news because of her good deed. <laughs> Uh, the article comes from a website called um, mm, mm, mm. now look at I got ahead of myself again. I think never mind, forget it. <laughs> I didn't write it down. I'm so sorry. <laughs> but the article <laughs> says the headline is cell phone radiation boosts cancer rates in animals. A twenty five million dollar NTP studies finds brain tumors in these animals, and the US government is expected to advise public of its health risk. Well we shall see. As I got into this article, I saw that it was perhaps more uh, making predictions than it was actual assertions. So I'm going to give you the scoop on this and see what you think about it. But the United States has a national toxicology program. I didn't know about that, NTP for short. And this article says that the uh, National Toxicology Program is expected to issue a public announcement that cell phone radiation presents a cancer risk for humans. We'll see if they do that. It says that the move comes soon after its recently completed study showed statistically significant increases in cancer among rats that had been exposed to cell phone signals for two years. Now, the new results contradict the conventional wisdom that such effects are impossible. Uh, scientists have been asserting for some time that there's no risk, uh, cancer risk from cell phones. Well, now the new data redefines the cell phone radiation controversy. The safety of cell phones has been debated for more than 20 years, especially after the International Agency for Research on Cancer identified RF radiation as a possible human carcinogen in 2011. Well, the NTP Radiation Project, which has been underway, they say, for more than a decade, is the most expensive effort ever undertaken by the toxicology program. They say that they spent more than $25 million so far to test their theory. 
which isn't a lot of money when it comes to research, actually. They probably should be putting billions into that if they can't find the quote-unquote evidence that it isn't good for us. But there you have it. So we'll see if that hits the mainstream news, if that actually is uh, issued as a public announcement. I powerfully doubt it, but we shall see. Well, scientists are discovering a way to turn trash into fuel. This is our High Hope article for tonight. Um, Made me feel really good to read it, and it's really good news. Um, A recent analysis on plastic use is confirming that the peril is descending on the world's oceans as well as entire ecosystems because of our plastic dumping and our plastic use. Now, this is according to a report published by the Ellen MacArthur Foundation that by the year 2050, there will be more plastic in the oceans than there are fish. We've talked about this before. But right now, one garbage truck of plastic is dumped into the ocean every single minute. And as humans continue to create more than 100 million metric tons of polyethylene a year, scientists and environmentalists alike are scrambling to find a way to reverse the detrimental effects of plastic waste. Well, now, scientists from the U.S. and China appear to have found the best way to do that. And they've described how they can carry out an efficient and selective degradation of polyethylenes into liquid fuels. And this was revealed in a recent study published in the Science Advances Journal. Instead of throwing plastic into the oceans or into holes in the ground, it can now be used as gas for your vehicle. Isn't that wonderful? Now, let's hope that they get the money to implement this, that they do it. You know, there's so much resistance by the powers that be to inventing things that can uh, offset the income by those that are making money (laughs) by what's going on. But, you know, even those that uh, are into fossil fuels and such have to admit that if we are drowning in plastic, uh, gasoline from fossil fuels will do us no good. So let's hope that this occurs, that they um, are able to recycle this plastic and turn it into gas for our cars. That would be just absolutely wonderful. And I think that maybe that will be forced upon us. So good news in that department. I'm overjoyed about it. You know, I'm always ranting and raving about plastic. So that's a wonderful, wonderful thing. You see what we can do when we just let the light in and put our heads to the use of uh, helping others and helping the environment. The wonderful things that human beings are capable of, and all of you starseed out there, you represent the best of that, the brightest and the greatest hope of that. So I appreciate all of you, each and every one of you, you beautiful souls. You bring me joy. I appreciate you. I send you a wave of love and light for the coming week. And uh, just keep on emanating, keep on shining. That's what we need. And uh, those of you that have resources, let's uh, put those resources to these kinds of projects and things that are going to turn our world around. I had a woman come to me recently that got involved in an earth-building project. She learned how to make uh, mud houses and so on and how to live off the grid, and she's all into that and organic gardening. And, oh, she was just an inspiration, and all the rest of you out there listening to that are of the same mindset you're the hope of the future. We just have to press on and make that happen. And she was a wonderful example of someone who actually quit talking about it and rolled up her sleeves and got into it. And it's just wonderful. And, you know, with the way it's going, uh, we are going to be seeing more and more of that by brilliant people such as yourselves. So thank you for being there. 
Thank you for being on this earth at this time. And sometimes you all wonder what your mission is. You're all anxious to fulfill your mission. Your mission's right here and now in how you live every day and the choices that you make. Sometimes the biggest mission comes in the smallest motions. Every little thing you do makes a difference. How about thinking about that being your mission for a while? Um, you know, there's an old saying, what do you do before you're enlightened? You chop wood and you carry water. What do you do after you're enlightened? You chop wood and you carry water. Sometimes the answers aren't so much in the stars as they are in the dirt and in the earth, in nature and in your everyday life. Your heartbeats matter. So, again, I thank you for being here. All right, I'm going to take my horse voice and exit and turn it back over to you, Ariel. (laughs) Okay. Anastasia, thank you so much. Uh, That is such vital information. And uh, we're going to have a whole um, show dedicated to the truth about cell phones. And I would just like to interject starseeds with children. Children's brains are, their skulls are thinner than adults and up until the age of 16 children are more 400 times more likely to develop cancer so please i mean and texting that you're still being exposed it's a little bit better but not a lot so please um, keep those starseed babies safe from that so um thank you so much anastasia and you take care of your voice and try to stay cool. <laughs> My pleasure. Thank you. Okay. Okay, well, um, we'll talk to you next week. And right now, I am about to start our presentation. This is um, a recording that Lavendar has in her vault about Atlantis. And um, if you do have um, questions when it's over, please write them down, because next week, Lavendar will be here with our guest, Tom T. Moore, whose new book about Atlantis and Lemuria is completely enthralling. So if you do have questions about it, just write them down, and uh, you can call in next week with those questions. So now, without further ado, here is the Atlantis material from Lavendar's Vault. This is Lavendar bringing you Atlantis material from the Vault. This is June 20th, 1983, Colorado Springs, Colorado. Subject, Atlantis Material. The Atlantis Material was given to me in November and December of 1980 while I was on the island of Aruba. This was conveyed by telethought communication sent by extraterrestrials residing on a spacecraft within the atmosphere of our planet of Earth, yet manifesting in another dimension. This information was transferred in pictures, words, concepts, and projections, and was received, taped, typed, and put away for safekeeping until the information could be used as educational tools for the upliftment of the consciousness of the people on the planet. After receiving this material, I couldn't help but wonder if I was indeed a part of a galactic project which would have long-term effects, or did I have an overworked imagination which was stimulated by some genetic chromosome within my brain. Was this for real 
me conversing with beings on a spacecraft, or had I created this whole thing on some level of mind? From the middle of November to the middle of December, I was awakened every morning at 5 a.m. and was activated into reciting out loud the happenings of a civilization which was destroyed over 12,000 years ago by the mad scientist of that time. Each morning I would view the story of Atlantis through the eyes of the one that I would learn to call the scribe. He would be sitting in his study on this ship, floating in the water where he was writing the events that had taken place since his arrival on the planet. He also would record the history of all creation and the laws that would govern these manifestations of creation. First, I would look over his shoulder to see what he was writing for the day, and then I would talk out loud into a tape recorder describing what I was perceiving of the time that was that part of history of Atlantis, the lost continent. Thurman Myers, my traveling companion and my best friend, helped me by transcribing the tapes at the end of each day's session. The sessions lasted until around 10 a.m. I would then shower and drink some grape juice, for my blood sugar would be extremely low after each session. By noon, I'd go to the kitchen and cook up a storm, fixing a fancy lunch. We would then go to the beach to relax on the sand while trying to hold on to whatever sanity we had left. I wondered if I was the only person in the world who was being shown this information and material about Atlantis, and was this for real? Had I also been there? Could I have made this up? These things I questioned every day. When the last day of information was relayed to me, I was coming very close to an emotional flip-out. I had seen and experienced so much in such a short period of time that I could hardly hold on to the trees, as the wind almost blew me off the world. I tried to rationalize some logical manner of how this material should be handled. And move would be great, then people could see what actually had happened to the lost continent of Atlantis. They could prob profit from the mistakes of ancient misuse of power. Then I thought about putting material into book form. Would I make it fiction or non-fiction? Well, truth is truth. But how was I ever going to bring this information to the attention of people who could hardly comprehend things beyond their limited points of view and politics and religion or the now moment? I pondered over this material for several months, then finally decided to put it to rest until I was given clear instructions on what to do with it. I had no idea that others whom I had not yet met would also be connected with this material in the years that followed. Thurman and I decided to make copies of this information and after doing so, place them in a safe place. I'm going to relate now some of the things which happen that correlate with the Atlantis material. In the story, the scribe had a male servant by the name of Clepus. He was a very loyal subject and owed his life to the scribe. On December 7, 1980, I saw a segment pertaining to Clepus. He would bring to the scribe a crystal staff about three feet long, placing on it a red cloth. The scribe would use this for balancing procedures and would use it often to counteract the energies coming from the city created by the mad scientist. At the end of that day's session, I was shown that Clepus 
was now incarnated into the body of one we know as Jerry Levine, a friend of ours from Reserve, New Mexico. I wondered how Jerry would react when I told him of his other life as Clapus, a male servant. On December 22, 1980, we arrived in, in Reserve, New Mexico with another friend of ours, Gina Bilodeau. I informed Jerry of a tape that I wanted him to hear. I tried to prepare him and told him to secure himself by having a beer. He told me that he told me that first he wanted to show me something which he had hand painted on a scroll. Then he pulled out this long piece of paper, and it was drawn a red cloth with a crystal staff. And the scroll it was dated December seventh, nineteen eighty the same date as the information that I received about Clapus, I was speechless. Here was my first confirmation that the Atlantis material was real, something beyond a coincidence. I was the one who needed the beer. I played the tape for him of the session about Clapus. He seemed pleased, but restless with the information. He didn't know quite how to take all of this, and it took him several months to really absorb what had happened to him. Neither of us talked about it again until later the next year. It just seemed, well, just too much of a coincidence. At that point in time, I didn't really want to consider anything else. Now to go to another date, still the same story. One of the reasons that Atlantis was destroyed was because of the misuse of power in many areas. But the misuse of vibrational music contributed heavily to the final decision to wipe Atlantis off the face of the earth, and wiped it was. For thousands of years, it has remained buried under the Atlantic Ocean, with very little physical evidence surfacing to acknowledge the possibility that such a continent even existed. How could such an advanced race of people destroy themselves? What was the contributing factor behind the scrubbing of an entire species? What cosmic laws were broken? And who were the souls that lived then? Are they back now? These are some of the questions that we would like those reading this to ask themselves. If you have lived at that period of time, then what was your contribution to this action? That should raise the hair on the back of your necks, for almost all of you have been connected to Atlantis in one form or another, if not directly, then indirectly through others that you have known and loved on this planet. No one ever really escapes the memories of Atlantis. In the last days of Atlantis, a group of scientists got together and decided that the people should be controlled by vibrational music. A device was engineered to wear on the head. It consisted of quartz crystal, ruby, gold, silver, and copper. Everyone was to wear this device, and if they didn't, then punishment would ensue. It was the theory of the High Council of Elders that Atlantis would become a more productive country if energies could be controlled through orchestrating the people and certain music was designed to enhance the daily workers that kept all parts of the country in operation. The people liked the music and looked forward to the new and visualization vibrational patterns. 
They didn't mind this kind of control, not really. They felt better and became model citizens and growth and advancement was visible. So the practice of wearing the headsets became as normal as one wearing clothes. The masses just never thought that that headset that they were wearing every day would contribute to the downfall of one of the most advanced civilizations that your planet has ever known. Had they even suspected that it would be turned on them, maybe, just maybe, the story of Atlantis would have been different. When Poseidon became king, who in your present knowing as John Fitzgerald Kennedy, the land of Atlantis was an outpost to some neighboring planets, and many species came to visit Atlantis and its people. It was an experiment of sorts, yes. Just think of it as a huge experiment that got carried away with itself. Poseidon was Pleiadian in blood coating and ruled for a very long time. He was a gracious and kind king, but ruled his people in such a way that they would have laid down their lives for him had he asked it. Later, when he was Abraham Lincoln, he asked it in the war between the North and the South. And later, when he was John Kennedy, he asked it for Vietnam. He had many children and was dearly loved by all except one, his oldest, Orpheus Marcus, who now is incarnated as Ronald Reagan, President of the United States of America. When Poseidon died, Orpheus Marcus took the throne and it was not his father's wish that he do so. But when Poseidon was poisoned with an extraterrestrial substance, then he had no say about the matter. This poisonous substance had far-reaching effects even after the death of the physical body. The soul experienced explosions of energy similar to magnetic storms of the sun. There is no other way to describe this. Now more detail about the building and the music in Atlantis. The buildings had music coming from the walls. As a person walked on quartz cobbled streets, the music in the headset would be stimulated by the energies of the quartz and the streets. There was a substance similar to mortar between the quartz stones that would keep the people from getting tired and also help further the coding of the music people's dispositions and attitudes were all controlled by vibrational conditioning through music, color, and subliminal brain control. As long as the people were peaceful and happy, everything seemed to be going just fine. When Orpheus Marcus took over, he commissioned some scientists to further their experimentation, and through his lack of discernment and love of power, he helped to destroy all of the good works of his father. Scientists discovered chemicals that would speed up a person's energy pattern and other chemicals that would slow them down. And today, scientists have come close to duplicating these drugs, but not exactly. Orpheus Marcus decided to change a few laws to suit himself and declared that the law of war should be abolished along with women having any rights whatsoever. He also destroyed the marital system and allowed a man to have more than one wife. He started to destroy within himself first all his spiritual knowledge and reasoning, and later extended those beliefs to his people. With control of their minds, bodies, and soul, 
he was able to program an entire race of people the way he wanted them to be. Later, after several years, he started changing the DNA and the RNA code of the people and helped to create monsters that were half human and half animal, the things as they were called. Mutations started to happen with much regularity. Celestial messengers came to warn him of his evil doings. They told him that if he did not reverse his era, that forces would be let loose that would destroy the entire country. This he did not believe, as he was totally consumed with his power, and was by this time a drug addict and could not be reasoned with at all. Another use for the headsets was of an educational value. People would go to various learning centers for their education. They would enter by using a punch card that would keep records of how many times they visited the learning center. When one would return, he would have to show the card because one could not go there too often. This would cause a mental breakdown if misused. One would simply lay back in a special chair that would align the body to different electromagnetic fields. The headset would be placed with a quartz crystal over the third eye. A disc would be placed in the headset, and music, color, and sounds would enhance the vibrational conditioning of the learning process. This kind of learning was fed at harmonic rates that caused very high levels of awareness to take place. What would take one year to learn in reading could be obtained in minutes at this very accelerated rate of comprehension. This is how the education of the people was conducted. After the session was over, the headset would be worn with certain music reaffirming everything that was beamed from the headset earlier. It was through this educational manner that discs were tampered with and the distortions were set in motion. People had given up their free will in order for a saner society to develop. Once the will was gone, they were nothing more than robots waiting for instruction or destruction. There were a few that had their wills, and it was through them that a rebellion started. Some left and even went to other countries. Atlantis was an experiment that failed. The perfect society was, in the end, a disgusting, demonic, grotesque misuse of power. All that had participated in this atrocity would have other lessons to learn. Eventually, when the cosmic calendar returned, they'd be placed together with the same leaders, the same scientists, but with a different script. This is happening now, as we speak to you this day of your counting. In March of 1981, Thurman and I ventured to Egypt on a tour called Atlantis Rising. We thought it was only appropriate that we should be on this trip so properly named. However, I hardly think I will go again with 250 metaphysicians. It was insanity from the beginning. Thurman and I seemed to have a protective shield around us which made us invisible most of the time. It wasn't until President Reagan was shot on March 29th that we seemed to become visible. That morning in Ajwan, people would come up to me and ask, where had we been? 
I told them that we'd been sitting at their tables, on their buses, on their tours. They were stunned because they had never seen us until that day, so they said. I didn't know how to explain it, but now it seems obvious we were being protected from so many various frequencies from among the people. In the Atlantis material, I was shown that the king who had changed the laws and, and thr threw out the law of one was the one and same soul essence of Ronald Reagan. He had allowed the mad scientist to corrupt the land and children and had sanctioned cruel experiments on half-animal and half-human beings. He was in power when the great crystal was misused, causing it to explode, bringing about crazy weather and earthquakes, which soon made the entire continent disappear. I remembered vividly how Ronald Reagan had won by landslide on November 4, 1980, over President Jimmy Carter. How stunned people were by the outcome. Some were shocked that a B-grade actor could bring himself to be President of the United States. I recall thinking, as I watched the election return in Las Vegas, Nevada, how millions of people were giving this man their votes, and they probably didn't even know why. I can still feel the chills that went through me when he made his acceptance speech. I will never forget the looks on the faces of Jimmy and Rosalind Cotter as though they had just seen Armageddon. I left Las Vegas the next day on November 9th and adjourned to Aruba. I wasn't aware of any presidential activities leading up to the inauguration. We had a television, but everything was in Spanish. I didn't think of Ronald Reagan until near the end of the Atlantis material when I was shown that he was the presiding king when Atlantis sank. Then I was in shock. What was this man doing as the leader of our country? Had he changed since Atlantis? Was he still the same power-hungry man who had caused millions to vanish overnight in, a, in the most catastrophic happening in the history of the planet? What were his motives now? And whose side was he on? And why tell me? I'm just a little farm girl from southwest Oklahoma. In the Atlantis material I was shown in the King's speech to the people, he proclaimed himself to be ruler of all men. I saw his coronation in every detail. His crowning was the celebration of all celebrations. It was performed in a large amphitheater in the round. Circus acts, entertainers like Siegfried and Roy and Margaret and others who are in the spotlight of today were among the same performers of that day as well. There has never been anything even in Las Vegas to compare to the gala happening of the coronation of the new king. I saw a woman in her late twenties standing outside the festivities with tears in her eyes. I watched her go to her house where her three children awaited their dinner. These were the new king's children, but he was not allowed to claim them because they were not of royal bloodline. In his hour of glory, the woman and children who loved him would be left behind and cast aside because of the rules of the land. I heard her praying before her children at the dinner table. O oh, infinite is, bless him this day of his crowning. Please, dear God, some way, some day, please bring him back to me. This humble woman today is Nancy Reagan, and the children, the same children, 
as, as are his today. The new king had one very good friend who was a singer and an actor in the theater. As a special surprise for his coronation, the scientist had developed and placed in his friend a mechanical voice box which made his voice so beautiful and with vocal range so precise that the sounds could activate the sexual glands of all the women who would hear his voice. That friend was the sole essence of the one that we now call Frank Sinatra. Women swooned, falling at his feet in those days, even as in, in, the, in those days, like today. As you remember back in the 40s, a skinny kid from New Jersey had women falling all over themselves. There was no logic. They all acted as though they were experiencing the effects of some aphrodisiac. Was this soul memory? Had some of them lived in Atlantis? Could all of this be happening again? On December 11th, as I arrived at the Miami airport, I picked up a newspaper. I hadn't seen one for a month. The first thing that met my eyes was the picture of Ronald Reagan with his arm around Frank Sinatra, and the caption read, Sinatra, inaugural chairman. I almost fainted. Thurman propped me up because he knew what I was experiencing, a realization only he could share at that time. We both looked at each other and was unable to really say a word. Slowly I walked to my next plane with my heart in my throat. As Thurman was catching a different plane, we parted with the realization that it was not an accident that Sinatra was to be the inaugural chairman. In charge of all the festivities for the president, was history repeating itself? Were these two back again in their famous duo? So many questions were bombarding my mind as I boarded my plane for Denver. Answers? Are you kidding? How was I ever going to convince anyone of the things I knew and what I was thinking? The whole prospect made me nervous, and as a consequence, I ordered a double martini and promptly fell into a deep sleep from the remainder of the flight. To this day, Thurman has never revealed to me how he felt, but I think I had felt enough for both of us. I didn't see the inauguration, but I heard that it was one of the most classy acts to hit Washington in a long time. I tried not to think too much of Ronald Reagan and Frank Sinatra in regard to the Atlantis material. They were a part of it, but were not the main characters of the story. In fact, they were just bit players in the whole scenario. Well, back to Cairo. We were getting off the train in Cairo from Ajwan when we received the news of the assassination attempt upon the president. I began flashing like a neon sign. It's useless trying to put on paper all the thoughts and feelings upon hearing the news. Here we were in the Middle East. And where was my passport? Were the natives going to remain friendly? My strongest thought was that I must get to the hotel and into a tub of water, which I did as soon as possible. While in the tub, I heard again from the guides who had brought the Atlantis material to me. They told me to go and find Mahmoud, the keeper of the pyramids, and ask if we could secure it alone so that we could pray for our president. Also I was told to locate ten others and take them inside the Great Pyramid of Giza and allow each one to hold a crystal. Once inside, I was to await further instructions. As I walked from the bathroom, I seemed to be floating on another type of energy, something that wasn't my own, 
My brain sped up, and my vision was so accurate that I was seeing through the walls. Upon seeing and hearing me, Thurman knew what had to be done, and he called ten people on the phone with instructions to meet us at the entrance to the pyramid. Upon our arrival, my mood closed the tour to all other tickets. Of course, many on tour who had purchased tickets were very upset, and a busload of French and German people both cussed us and made nasty gestures. I could see and feel the hate coming from their eyes and felt their lack of understanding of what we were about to do. An Egyptian girl appeared saying that she had been asked to come to the pyramid to pray for our president. I had never seen her before, but I felt she had been sent for a reason. Two more from our group made their appearance, and once inside, we found three more already awaiting us, which made a total of eighteen, and that's exactly how many crystals I had I had to bring to those presents to hold. These particular crystals have been given to me in a mysterious manner, which I shall not reveal at this time. I was the mediator of the group and led them in chants and mantras. We sent our energies out with the help of the energies of the pyramid through the crystals to President Reagan to bring healing and strength to his physical, mental, spiritual, and psychic body. We had also been told that his press secretary, Jim Brady, had died. So we conducted a ritual for his soul to go through Bardo peacefully. Upon our return to the United States, we learned that at that exact moment we were conducting the service for Jim Brady. He had experienced a miraculous recovery which mystified the medical doctors. It was agreed medically that he had been declared dead, but had been brought back to life. Actually, they were correct, for the conscious energies which were at work operated under the assumption that he had crossed over into the Bardo state. When you help someone through Bardo, you help take their spirit to the next stage of evolution through peace and harmony. After that energy had been directed to the United States, several people laid down in the sarcophagus and accepted a healing. That day in the pyramid was of special significance to all of us. Although I had asked that all the crystals be returned to me after the service, two of those present did not return them and I don't know what has happened to the crystals or to the people. Did we interfere in the matters of God? Were we playing God? What were the powers of that great pyramid, and what powers of energy were in those crystals? Who were these beings conducting the healing exercise? And if it's true that Ronald Reagan was the king of Atlantis when it went down, then why was it important that we help to save him? Was he now the good king, making restitution for past mistakes? Did his soul need to balance the karmic debt to millions of people from Atlantis? Were we helping to establish a new galactic walk-in energy, which would help the President to bring about the balance needed? These things I've asked myself a hundred times since that day. All of this wasn't exactly a confirmation of the Atlantis material. It wasn't provable, as with Jerry Levine. But still, it hit home as a contributing factor, helping to bring forth this truth about the Atlantis material. Because you know when the truth hits you, you just seem to know it. One week before the healing session in the pyramid for the president, 
I had experienced another segment of the Atlantis material while I was lying in the sarcophagus where I was shown the final chapter from the scribe. The dark forces Belial's had infiltrated the light forces and had found a way to help eliminate some of the twelve who had been brought to the planet. As I was awaiting the scene to begin, I became aware of the presence of a very strong cobalt blue light which seemed to pervade the king's chamber. I knew then that that was what was about to happen was to see the most important segment, the final chapter of this incredible story. The beginning scene showed Clapus, the scribe's servant, walking next to the crystal cylinder which contained the body of the scribe. This surprised me and brought tears to my eyes. Clapus was holding a copy of the records which the scribe had written and already placed in four other places around the world. I didn't consciously know that there were other copies of his writings, although it would stand to reason that there should be a backup system for future discovery. Clapus carried the records in a box, so I couldn't really see how the information was conveyed. Later my impression was that it was coated in quartz crystal, such as maybe a crystal skull. The Atlanteans were very advanced in all technology and would know how to secure delicate information in a protective way to prevent misuse of the information. Once those who had the proper attunement and blood coating of remembrance would be able to tap these records at the proper time. Safeguards were placed over every set of records, for the balance of the planet was at stake. Never again would this valuable information be used by the dark forces. This is the reason for protective energies 24 hours a day of Earth time, which is placed over this information and all the places where they are. Clapus left Atlantis with a copy of the records. I watched him as he finally took them to someone in France. I wasn't shown who at that time, but I was shown that it eventually came into the hands of Nostradamus, the famous seer of France in the 16th century. Later it was revealed to me that Merlin also had it in his possession, and he showed it to King Arthur, who in turn entrusted it to Sir Lancelot to be taken to the next destination. Nostradamus had previously been, been one of the original twelve, and so was Merlin. It was planned that the record only be in the hands of one of the twelve, or the energies of the bloodline of the twelve. This was done for safety of information. Nostradamus used these records as a guideline for his quatrains, for which he later became famous. In these records were the ancestral bloodlines of how the programming would take place concerning the transmutation process of eliminating the laggard blood off the planet. This process would take thousands of years, for it all had to come about through the cosmic laws and would only work through a computerized time capsule to be released by cosmic planetary energies which had been set in motion and were irreversible. Nostradamus passed it on to others who would have the proper blood coating and now it is somewhere in France guarded day and night by a swarm of white doves. Although I was given the place, I will not disclose it in this writing. You know, later it was revealed to me that I had 
a, a relative whose name was Ed Criswell of Criswell Predicts. And he always said he was the incarnation of Nostradamus. You know, it was Chris who helped threw me into the world to do psychic work and investigation, which brought me to this information about the records of Atlantis. Chris died on October 3rd, 1982, the same day that Mukananda died. I visualized them leaving the planet hand in hand to further help to organize the next assignment dealing with the balance of the planet. In Chris's last year, he became an alcoholic, but after learning what information he carried in his blood and soul, it is quite understandable. For a time, I was judgmental with regard to his behavior, but you know what? Not anymore. The information contained in those records is so mind-expanding that it is very hard to maintain Earth's sanity and still keep an Earth balance. As I write this, I can feel Chris's presence and can still see his clear blue eyes as though they were on this written page. Suddenly, a fire alarm has sounded in the building across the street. I am smiling and thinking of Chris making one of his dramatic entrances and exits like a showman. Several months after returning from Egypt, I made a trip to Reserve, New Mexico to see Jerry Levine, alias Klepus, to tell him of the final chapter of the scribe. While talking to him, I noticed the color in his face changing drastically. When I finished telling him the story, he pulled out a piece of paper which had arrived from France. This paper now has been misplaced or has disappeared. It seems that his blood relatives in France had traced him to New Mexico and had offered him a piece of property in, Fan in France if he could pay back taxes on it. It was a name similar to the name of the place in which I had seen the records to be. I felt an explosion in my brain. I wanted to run out of the building screaming down the street. Although I didn't, I surely wanted to. Instead, I calmly changed the subject and finished telling Jerry other interesting incidents of our trip. If Jerry was hit by what had just happened, he didn't show it. Months later, when I would bring up the subject, nothing seemed to register. For some reason, it almost seemed he was not supposed to remember the connection. I took it as a sign of safety of information. Was this all a coincidence? Is there such a thing? Who was setting this plan into motion? Was Jerry to pay the taxes and claim his right to the records, or was I to pay them for him? Why had Jerry's mind received and understood everything up to a point and then went blank? Was some part of him protecting his sanity or perhaps even the records themselves? These were all things that I had to consider. Again, we didn't talk about this for another year. It was just all too much to think about, much less handle in an everyday existence. In fact, I chose to put the Atlantis material away and not talk of it or show it to even to my friends. In November of 1982, I was led to show the material to, to actress Shirley MacLaine. There was some reason she was to know about this material. I remembered her saying, Why are you showing me this? I told her that possibly something would take place later which would fit together with the Atlantis material. I didn't tell her that she was my backup system and now the information was also her responsibility. The timing was wrong, and her energies just hadn't shown up yet for that. She handled the information in a very cool manner, I suppose because of her 
professionalism as an actress. I wanted to shake her and just say, Listen, Shirley, if I don't get this job done, then you'll have to do it. Instead, I pouted and poured myself another brandy. Atlantis didn't seem to be in any other person's recall bank but mine, at least not like I was experiencing. But the timing wasn't right, and as usual, I was getting very impatient. Once again, I put away the Atlantis material and turned my attention to other things. Then on May 3, 1983, Thurman and I went to North Carolina to see Andre Puarich and his wife Rebecca and their two children. Andrea is a man of about 67 years and Rebecca is about 30. It was he who discovered and promoted Yuri Geller, the Israeli, who has the great power of telekinesis, the power of bending metal. Andrea had spent a great deal of time, money, and energy showing the intellects of the world the extreme possibilities of universal laws and concepts. He had written a book about Yuri and his encounters with a spacecraft called Spectra. This book is of such great magnitude that a witch hunt was begun to try and stop Andrea from further writing and informing the people. This book has now been banned from public libraries in the United States. Furthermore, no publisher is allowed to print any of his material for fear of having the Internal Revenue Service audit their books for the next 20 years. He became such a threat to scientists, politicians, and the CIA that he has had to flee for his life to Mexico where he and his family have lived for three and a half years. His exodus came when the CIA had his house burned along with his books. Not since the persecution of Nikolai Tesla or William Reich has the government so vermintly gone after the soul of a man dedicated to so much truth. Now he has returned to the United States and he's working on a cancer cure. I've admired his courage and desire to return to his country, which has only persecuted him for his efforts. Why does the government fear this one man to such extremes? What does he know that can hurt it? Why not work with him instead of against him? I wish I understood more about how our government thinks and works. One day, as we were sitting on the porch, enjoying the countryside, and visiting with these fine people, I decided to tell Andrea and Rebecca the story of the scribe and the Atlantis material. Just at the exact moment I had finished telling the story, the phone rang. Rebecca excused herself and went to answer the phone. Their phone is unlisted, and only a handful of people have it, and so we, since we had arrived, the phone had not been working, and each time we tried to call town, a recording would tell us that the number we had dialed was no longer in working order. I just shrugged and thought it was another way in which we were being protected. Rebecca returned to tell us that some man had just called from that place in France. You know, the place that Jerry Levine had just been told that he needed to pay taxes and wanted to know if Andrea had found the Book of Knowledge yet. He further said that Rebecca's mother had given him the phone number and he left Rebecca a number for Andrea to call. I had not been aware of Andrea's searching for the Book of Knowledge because I hadn't yet read his book and didn't know that Spectra had once told he and, Aunt, and Yuri that they would find this Book of Knowledge. After relaying the message to us, we must have all looked like 
fried lightning bugs because our hair stood straight upon end. Rebecca pulled us all into the living room and showed us a map of France dated 1700. On the map was the name of that town, but it was spelled differently. As I looked at the map, a part of my brain started clicking, and I began to get dizzy. Rebecca was talking, but I seemed to be in a fog and couldn't hear what she was saying. Later, she repeated it for me. Her in-laws from previous marriage have a house in France, and they give it to her uh, one month out of each year. Well, that just about fixed me. The whole thing was too much, so I retreated to the kitchen to busy myself cooking chicken soup. Andrea had to go to bed. Thurman took a walk in the woods, and Rebecca started the laundry and doing her duties. We all knew what was happening, but none of us was yet willing to talk about it. Only Rebecca mentioned it off and on for the next few days. Every time she did, I wanted to put my hand over her mouth. I just didn't want to hear it. I wanted to be finished with the Atlantis material. Who was going to believe it anyway? And then there was Andrea. He had not so much as ever wished that the book of knowledge would be within his grasp, for Yuri had not seen fit to help him even look for the book. His interests were in other things. I had been so excited upon so many different occasions that I was, I was afraid to be excited anymore. But here was Rebecca, newly activated to the material, and she was so excited about it. Further, we certainly didn't want someone telling us about more work to be done, and this time it could be dangerous beyond belief. If the government had done terrible things to Andrea because of his book and beliefs, then what in the hell were they going to do to him now? Furthermore, what were they going to do to me? I tried to tell my paranoia to sit down and shut up, but facts are facts, and I, I couldn't ignore them. For a moment I flashed upon living on the farm in southwest Oklahoma driving a tractor. Was this what my daydreams from youth had brought me? What would happen when the news leaked out that some little farm girl could have access to secrets and records of a continent that wasn't here anymore, with very little evidence that it had ever existed? The whole scene was too much. With my temper, the temperament the way it is, I just said, Screw it. I don't want to play anymore. However, things were happening in such a synchronized manner that I knew I was part of a gigantic plan, and my not wanting to play didn't seem to matter to the forces who were setting this plan into motion. If I didn't play, they had someone else to start where I stopped. Either I shaped up an attitude or I shipped out. It was very mathematical. Simple, subtract me, add someone else, or let me play. I decided to play mainly because I had come so far, whether sane or not, and I wanted to see just how much further this information of the records would take me. I realized this would be dangerous, but then what the hell? What was this book of knowledge? Would this information become public, or would this be the secret of my life? And that is the end of the reading of the material from the vault. Back to you, Ariel. Well, I sure hope that um, 
you all have enjoyed this presentation. And if you do have any questions, um, write them down because Lavendar will be back next week with Tom T. Moore and more talk about Atlantis and Lemuria. Um, his information is absolutely stellar and completely aligns with what Lavendar heard some 30, 35 years ago. So we're really looking forward to next week's show. And until then, we wish you all a great week. And from all of us here at Starseed Hotline and Starseed Radio Academy, please remember, count your blessings every day. Good night, everyone. been listening to Starseed Radio Academy. Visit our website at www.starseedhotline.com. 